Good morning. Our scripture this morning is Philippians 4, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of our Lord. You can be seated. There you go. We're ready to go now. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter 4. We're looking at verses 1 through 9. We'll be referring back to that text. We're going to dive into that pretty deeply. And uh, I think you'll see that as being very beneficial. God's amazing promises. Wow, did we have a great weekend last weekend? If you were here for one of our many services, wow, it was a fantastic time. Watched a number of people make a public declaration of their faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah, yay God. Yay God. Praise God. And so we kicked off a brand new teaching series last weekend, God's Amazing Promises. And this weekend we're looking at God's Amazing Promises for your personal peace. How many could use some peace in your life? Yeah, I think we all could. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about. The truths I'm going to share with you have been really life-changing for me and have been really beneficial and helpful for me. This is God's Word. It will certainly make a difference in your life. Take a look at your sermon notes here. The more highly unstable the environment that ships and planes navigate, the more, they, uh, the more they need strong stabilizers within. If you understand uh, ships and planes, they have these stabilizers within to endure uh, unstable environments. My wife and I, uh, about 20 years ago, went on an uh, anniversary cruise up the East Coast, it was 20, we were celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and so as we were going up the East Coast, it was a great cruise all the way up until they said that we, uh, the ship would be hitting the tail end of a hurricane. And I told my wife, oh goody, we're going to die on our 25th wedding anniversary by drowning. And uh, anyway, they said not, not to worry because there was this internal stabilization within the ship that would help the ship, though you need to stay in your cabins for tonight and no one walking out on the deck because you could uh, go overboard. And my wife kept trying to get me to go out and walk on the deck. That was so rude of her. She even called me sissy and big baby. Come on, go out there. Just test it out. Come on, big boy. Test it out. She actually did that. I mean, now you know what I have to put up with for 45 years, okay? And I said, I'm not going to do it. You go out there. If you want to go out there, you go out there. I didn't say that, but, but anyway. 
Anyway, but we, we certainly endured the storm, and, and what was interesting about it is that that night, the boat did rock pretty heavy. It was like 15-foot swells, and the boat rocked. I felt like I was going to fall out of bed a few times. We both got uh, seasick, but it was, a, it, was a great, it was a great ride overall. We got through it. Now, I, I share that because look at the next thought on your notes. The same is true with us. The greater the external instability that we face, the greater the external instability we face in life, the greater the internal stabilizers we need to endure the, really the storms of life. Take a look at this verse that's on your notes. It's a powerful verse. Within this verse, you will see the external instability. He describes the external instability. And then he talks about the internal stabilizers that God gives to us. This is a powerful verse. This was a great memory verse to kind of help you to navigate the difficulties of life. Look what it says. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed. He's actually kind of talking metaphorically here, but really catastrophically. This is a catastrophe that he's talking about here. I mean, and so it can come in a lot of different forms in our day and time. It can be a relational catastrophic event in our life, divorce or death of a loved one. It can be disease. You get to report from the doctor, you've got terminal cancer. It could be financial. It could be political. There's a lot of political upheaval currently in our culture today. It could be any number of things. What are you going through? If you haven't gone through anything catastrophic yet, eventually you will. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed. That's the external instability in our world that we can face. But listen to this. Look at the internal stabilizers that he gives us. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you. Woohoo! That is good. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord. This is his personal name. So it's talking about our intimate relationship with him. This is the his name, Yahweh, who has compassion on you. The word compassion here, listen to me. He has a deep affection for you, unlike anybody else. And, and so when you look at this idea of steadfast love, that's covenant love. The only way that we can enter into covenant love with God is through the blood of Christ. This is blood bought. So Old Testament, they had the sacrificial system, and that pointed to the ultimate sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ for us on the cross. See, our sin separates us from God, but Jesus has reconciled us back to God. He built the bridge across the chasm that separated us from God. And, and so that's where we have that steadfast love. And so we have peace with God. It tells us in Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So in that verse, he's talking about, first of all, because we have the peace of God, then he goes on and talks about the covenant of peace. We can have the peace of God. So there's a difference between the peace with God and the peace of God. So we have peace with God. And to the degree I understand that I have peace with God, I will have the peace of God ruling my heart and mind, guarding my heart and mind in Christ Jesus. So those are those internal stabilizers that can get us through the external instability of our lives. So peace with God will give you the peace of a God that can navigate the most difficult circumstances. Here's the problem. The reason why we don't have peace of a God ruling our hearts and minds is because we are questioning, oftentimes we don't have the assurance of the peace with God. So to the degree you understand that you have peace with God, that's what you have to go back to. If you don't have the peace of God, you need to go back to, the, to, to really rebuild the assurance 
that you have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he says in Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. Now think about that. Think of the implications of that. That means that he loves you. He cares for you. He will always be there for you regardless of what you go through. If you have that assurance of that, I have access to the throne room of God. God is for me and not against me. He's always with me. You can have the peace of God ruling your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. So, so how do we get to that place where we have that assurance? We can build the assurance that we have peace with God so that I can have the peace of God to face any kind of circumstances. Well, that's our notes. That's Philippians 4, 1 through 9. He's going to make a very practical message to help you to experience more peace in your life. And so the first part of the note you can see, we're going to talk about the disciplines of peace. These are things that we can do to increase our peace, uh, not uh, peace with God, but the peace of God in our heart. How can we increase that and, and have greater assurance so that we can navigate the circumstances of life? And so, and then we'll talk about the character of that peace. So we got disciplines of peace. There's four of those. We're going to stand firm in the Lord, agree in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, trust in the Lord, four of those. And then we'll talk about the character of peace. What does that look like in our heart when, when, our, when we're at peace, when we have that peace in our heart in spite of the circumstances? Now, what you're going to see here in this text is really fascinating. Paul is going to show us how to apply cosmic principles to the common places of our life. He's going to take these cosmic ideas and take them down into the common places of our life. And here's the first one. Stand firm in the Lord. So the disciplines of peace. Stand firm in the Lord. Look at verse 1. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The word stand firm, the Greek here, it is a commanding officer to his soldiers to hold their position on the battlefield. So oftentimes you get this idea of life being a battle. And so if we're going to hold our position on the battlefield, we need to stand firm in the Lord. And you'll notice that he starts this verse in this chapter with the word therefore. Therefore, he's referring to chapter 3. So let me give you a quick summary of chapter 3 because this is what he means by stand firm in the Lord. Chapter 3. Chapter 3, Paul goes through his accomplishments, his achievements, his accolades in life. And then he comes to a place in chapter 3, verse 8, where he says almost kind of, almost is a bit stunning. He says, yeah, you know, all that stuff that I've achieved, accomplished, all the great things that we have in this life is worthless compared to the priceless gain of knowing Jesus Christ. And then he goes on, he says, and he explains what he means by that, priceless gain of knowing Jesus Christ. And he talks about having this, this righteousness that's not based on works. It's not something I achieved, but it's something that I received by faith in Christ. So I have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's nothing, I would not trade this for anything. In fact, everything in life is worthless compared to the priceless gain of knowing Christ. And then he goes on and elaborates a little bit more in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Maybe you've heard that. Paul's telling us the, really the passion of his life. This is the passion of my life. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering and to become like him in his death so that I might by all means attain to the resurrection of the dead. So what is he saying? He said, here's the passion of my life more than anything else. This is the most valuable thing to me. I want to know him. I want to become like him. I want to even suffer for him. If that's what life brings me, I want to suffer for him in such a way that I put him on display, on display and I want to be with him for all eternity. That's my heart cry. 
And then as you work through that, he talks about, well, this is the mature perspective in the Christian life. And then he, in verse 20, he says, see, we are, we are citizens not of this earth, but we are citizens of heaven. This would be the perspective. So that's what he's saying. That's what you need to stand firm in. It's, and it's a battle. Stand firm thus. This is a commanding officer to his soldiers to hold their position on the battlefield. And so I could summarize it like this. So my relationship with Christ and all that I have in him is more valuable to me than anything or anyone else in this world. That's what you need to stand firm in. Why is that? You see, if what you most value can be taken away or destroyed, then you set yourself up for excessive fear, worry, and anxiety. So if you're valuing anything more than Christ, if you love anything more than God or live for anything more than God, your life will be, it will be like a tossing sea, Isaiah 57, 20 through 21, or like a house built on sand rather than rock, Matthew 7, 24 through 27. You see, the natural consequences of not centering your whole life on God is deep restlessness. It's inordinate anxiety, anger, and depression. That's what he's saying. And we've got to fight for that. That's the good fight of faith. That's where he begins. Pretty amazing. So I had someone in our staff this last week ask, well, what is this inordinate anxiety, anger, and depression? It's excessive in our life. We, we, you know, it's normal to have some anxiety. You need to have that. We're, we're feeling human beings, and so we interact with each other. We're going to have some anxiety. We're going to have some anger, which is appropriate, and there's also going to be some sadness in our life. We're going to navigate that, but inordinate means that your anxiety is just not... Uh, it, it goes beyond just anxiety. It becomes paranoia where I have sleepless nights. It gets a hold of my life. Or... Anger, it's not just anger, it becomes a bitterness that eats away at you. It's excessive. Or it's not just sadness. We're going to be sad, but it's, but it's despair. It's a sense of hopelessness. Where these emotions begin to take over your life, and they rule your life. We've got to stand firm in the Lord. Here's the next one. We've got to agree in the Lord. By the way, I don't know if you could notice, notice that. He's taking... If you could see in that, apply cosmic principles to common places. Cosmic principle is that I value Christ more than I value anything else in my life, and that's going to help me navigate the issues of life. Even the, even the good things in my life, my marriage, my kids, my church life, all of that is all secondary to the primary value of having Christ in my life. And so the next one is agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. Nothing brings greater anxiety into your life than relational conflict. And that's what he deals with. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, I entreat Yudia and I entreat Sintki to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion. I don't know who this true companion is, but notice he's appealing to the true companion here to not triangulate with these women, but to be a point of reconciliation, bring them together. You guys know what triangulation is? Triangulation as opposed to being a, a point of reconciliation. Triangulation is that someone, you come and hurt me, and rather for me to come and talk to you about that and work through that, I go and tell someone how bad you hurt me to kind of get them on my team. That's called triangulation. I've brought a third person in on it. Rather than to go to you directly and deal with it, what that person should do that I go and talk to them, if they're healthy, they'll say, hey, did you talk to them about that? Go and talk to them right now. Did you tell them how bad they hurt you? In fact, I'll go with you. Let's go. Come on. We're going to go talk to them. We're going to work through it. That's what he's saying right here. 
Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. Here's the key point right here, whose names are in the book of life. See, there's the, there's the cosmic principle into the commonplace of relational conflict. Don't you realize your name is in the book of life? So agree in the Lord because your name is in the book of life. What does that mean? How do we apply that to our lives? Here's what it means. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but people who go through life and death circumstances tend to have a tighter bond than, uh, than other people that are just, you know, they connect, you know, maybe in, in ways uh, that are more superficial, secondary to life and death circumstances. And that's really where we are as Christians. This is what I put on, on my notes. Our blood-bought relationship with Christ should be the highest common denominator in our relationship with other Christians over and above class, race, culture, gender, politics, philosophy of ministry, and even beliefs on secondary issues. The fact that we've, we've gone from death to life. I mean, think about it. We've gone from death to life, from being hell-bound to heaven-bound, from being lost to being found, from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. Everything else is secondary in comparison to those things. I don't know if you noticed, but there's a lot of conflict going on among Christians these days. I don't know if it's social media that stirs a lot of that stuff up. People can hit and run and fling all, spew all their venom out there at each other. There's a lot of divisiveness within churches and within Christians. It's sickening. It's horrible. It makes me wonder, are these people even followers of Christ? Do they even know Christ? Do they not understand what we've all been through together, life or death? It, it doesn't make sense to me. Conflict happens when we make secondary issues primary. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did. Matthew 23, 24, listen to what Jesus said to the Pharisees. He said, you blind guides... You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. People are dying and going to hell, and you are, you are fighting over secondary issues. So I start thinking about what are some of the secondary issues. I can give you a whole list of secondary issues that people fight over. I've seen people divide over. Eschatology. Operation of the gifts of the spirits, Christian liberties, women in ministry, philosophy of ministry in a church, their style and structure, Calvinism versus Arminianism, politics, social justice. Now listen to me, there's just a lot of mountains not worth dying on. I'm seeing Christians die on mountains they should never die on. It's stupidity, it's foolishness. When people are dying and going to hell, the gospel is first and foremost the most important thing, that people hear the gospel, people know Christ, people walk with Christ, people get to know Christ. That's what we're about. That's what we need to be about. Everything else is secondary. And I, I've, I've seen crazy things happen because people make secondary issues the mountain that they're going to die on. That's folly. And there's just a lot of mountains out there that are, are not worth stressing out over. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me? There's just a lot of things. It's like we can debate, but we're not going to divide over it. And if you look at where most people are dividing, they're typically secondary issues. They're not the primary issues of our salvation in Christ Jesus. And so when he says agree in the Lord, just remember our blood-bought relationship with Christ is the highest common denominator. Here's the next thing I think he means is that you and I, because we are, our names are written in the book of life, listen, we are the most loved and forgiven and reconciled people on this planet. 
through Jesus Christ. And therefore, we should be the most loving, forgiving, reconciling people on this planet. We should be doing everything we can. Just as he's encouraging, he says, my true companion, help these women. Help these women. Help people get it together. Help people be unified. Help them to overcome. Help them to see that they're, they're dying on the wrong mountain. Get them back to what it's most important. Your names are written in the book of life. That's what's most important. And I, we did a whole... I'm not going to get into the specifics of healthy relationships, but listen, relationships are two-way streets. You can only take care of your side of the street. Take care of your side of the street. You can't deal with theirs. If they refuse to take care of theirs, that's on them. You just got to move on. That's a fact. That's what you have to do. And then here's the next one, is that I think that he means by this, so agree in the Lord because your names are written in the book of life. I think that that should make us unoffendable. I think that as believers, that we should be unoffendable. What we have in Christ, his approval, his acceptance of us, the security that brings, the significance that brings, is better by far than all the applause and accolades in this world and bigger than all the offenses and rejection of this world. Oh, well, someone hurt your feelings. The God of the galaxies bled and died for you. That's what he's saying. Your perspective is all off. What in the world are you thinking? Oh, this person doesn't like you. Oh, they said some mean, nasty things about you. Oh, my goodness, they're tarnishing your reputation. Your name is written in the book of life. My goodness sakes. He's just saying, this is so big. This is so powerful. This is so much greater than any, any accusation, any hurt, any rejection, any offense. Your name is written in the book of life. Come on, agree in the Lord. Your name is written in the book of life. So we should be able to love, serve, and treat others with respect regardless of whether they agree or disagree with us because our names are written in the book of life. I mean, if you have the smile of God, all other frowns are inconsequential. If you have the commendation of God, all condemnations are trivial, really, in light of that. Otherwise, you're not, you don't have a good, healthy perspective. You don't have a high view of God that you need. So this is, so, so we got the first two. We're applying cosmic principles to common places, stand firm in the Lord, agree in the Lord. So how do we do that even better? I think it's the next one. This is how you get there. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Look at verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. I love that verse. That's a good one. Rejoice in the Lord always. How often are we to rejoice in the Lord? Always. always. Oh, just to make sure you didn't, if you didn't get that, let me say it again. Rejoice. Always. always. Yes. I love it. Now, this is the theme of Philippians. Joy, rejoicing, or gladness is used 19 times. He's in prison, by the way, while he's writing this. And so joy is a buoyancy in life. Life can push you down, it can't keep you down, it keeps bringing you up because of the pleasures you find in the eternal privileges that are yours in Christ Jesus. So the opposite of joy is not sadness. You can actually have sadness and grieve while you have joy. In fact, it's your joy that gets you through the grief. But the opposite of joy is actually hopelessness and despair. So even in our sadness, we have joy. It's that buoyancy in our life based on the pleasures we find in the eternal privileges that are ours in Christ Jesus. So this is what it means to rejoice in the Lord. It means to treasure him, assess his value to you, reflect on his beauty and glory until your heart rests and is deeply satisfied in him. Paul writes in Galatians 6.14, may I never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ through whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. So to the degree you rejoice in the Lord is to the degree that your 
that your heart will not be captivated by the things of this world. All those, all those things will be in their right place. They'll be secondary. May I never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ, through whom the world is crucified to me. The world will be crucified to you. There's the song that I go over in my mind from time to time. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full into his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Yeah, believe me. When you rejoice in him, you understand what you have in him. A lot of those things that are, they get back to those, they get demoted to secondary, third, and fourth, and they just don't have the same impact on your life because you know he loves you, he's with you, he's gonna take care of you. That's why it's so critical that you rejoice in the Lord. It tells us in Psalm 16, chapter, uh, chapter 16 of Psalm, verses four, eight, and nine, it says some, it's an interesting sequence that he takes us through. Verse four, he says, the sorrows of those will increase who run after another God. So to the degree that you love anything more than Christ, you're gonna increase in sorrows, anxiety, anger, and, dis- and, uh, and sadness. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. But he goes on, he says, the solution is I've set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. I'm not gonna be inordinately anxious and angry and and depressed because I've set the Lord always before me. I'm rejoicing in him. He's my source, he's my substance. He's my refuge, he's my peace, he's my joy. And then he ends by one of my favorite verses is 1611. He says, you have showed me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Oh, my goodness, there's fullness of joy in his presence. I mean, I have peace with God. That gives me fullness of joy in his presence day in and day out. That he's inviting us to enjoy the presence of God, practice the presence of God, rejoice in him, enjoy him daily. Boy, that'll prepare you and help you to get through any kind of crisis and problem. I love Psalm 8410. You guys are familiar with this. Better is one day in your courts than what? Thousands elsewhere. What's your favorite vacation spot? Imagine all paid trip, thousand days at your vacation, your favorite vacation spot. He's just saying one day in his presence is better than a thousand there. And then he goes on, he says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. In other words, all the wealth of the wicked, it's temporal, but they can have that because I have you, even if I'm just a doorkeeper. The lowliest position with God is better than the highest position in the world with all the wealth. Do you have that perspective? That's what it means to rejoice in the Lord. What I have in him is better than anything on this planet. That's what he's saying. And then he says something here in verse five. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. I think he's, that's a good tie-in to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. The word reasonableness means this. This is a radical evenness of temper, moderation, or balance. So in other words, let your reasonableness, let your evenness of temper, moderation, and balance show to the world that the Lord is at hand. He walks through the day with me. I have him. I'd rather have him than anything else. John Newton in in Amazing Grace, and I quote, this is what he said. He said, he wrote Amazing Grace, and this is what he said. If you understand the grace of God, it makes the worst times bearable and the best times leavable. Worst times bearable, best times leavable. This is a holy moderation. So a Christian has sorrow but not despair during times of loss. Because you can take everything from me, but you can't take what's most important to me, and that's my relationship with God. 
and that he's taking my bad circumstances and working for my good. A Christian has happiness from good times, but it's not his ultimate happiness. Why is that? Because God is my ultimate happiness. So we have, we have acceptance, security, significance in Christ that all the success in this world can't give us and all the suffering or failure in this world can't take from us. That's this holy moderation. So peace is not the absence of problems, but the presence of Christ. So rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And the next one is trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. So stand firm in the Lord, agree in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, trust in the Lord. These are all disciplines of peace. The disciplines of peace. I think this verse six defines for us trust in the Lord. You're going through a hard time, your friend comes along and says, hey, trust in the Lord. What does that mean? Well, this is what it looks like, verse six. By the way, verse six is a great memory verse. All of these are great memory verses, but in this, this one in particular, how many have memorized verse six? You have it memorized, it's a great verse. So be anxious, don't be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. Did you hear that? Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything. There's no trivial thing to God. He's saying in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. That's a great verse. So prayer is the general. So you should be having interaction with God. It's not monologue, it's dialogue. God should be speaking to your heart, you should be talking to him. So that's general, and then more specific, he uses supplication. Supplication is bringing your request to God. But notice he says thanksgiving, with thanksgiving. We'll talk about that in a moment, but let me define this word anxious. Anxious is not, is not normal care and concern. It does not mean normal care and concern. If you love someone, you will care and be concerned for them. Okay, in other words, the counterfeit, so you need to know this, the counterfeit of peace is indifference, apathy, and not caring. Sat down with a couple a number of years ago, and the, and the woman was bragging about how her husband was so peaceful. And I said, well, he's not actually peaceful, he's apathetic, he doesn't care about you. You touch something that matters to him, like his car, like his rail, he had a hot rod car, and I said, he'll be anxious, believe me. I mean, he'll be, but he, it's because he doesn't really, he doesn't value you. And that's why you've come to talk to me and I'm, I'm gonna hook him up right now. I'm gonna light a fire under him because he doesn't give a rip about you and it's evident. Because if he cared about you, there would be some concern. There, he would be motivated to do what he could in, in this relationship to communicate with you and to love you and to care for you, but he doesn't. And he says, so that's the, that's the counterfeit of peace, indifference, apathy, and not caring. But that's not talking about that. It's not talking about this so anxious is not normal care and concern, but this is what it is. It means to be torn up or to be torn into pieces by debilitating worry and fear. The same word is used with Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. Remember when Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha was running every which way but loose in the home? Oh, she tells Jesus, Jesus, tell my sister to help me. She's not helping me. So Martha was all stressed out. Well, the same word is used here when, when when Jesus addresses Martha, he says, Martha, Martha, very tender words, Martha, Martha, you are anxious. You're torn to pieces. You're anxious and troubled about many things. This is the epitome of ADD right here. Attention deficit disorder, man, I'm just running everywhere. Ah, what am I gonna do? I got so many things on my mind. And that's what he's talking about here. That's the word. 
anxiety. Anx don't be anxious about anything but in everything with prayer and supplication. Bring your request to God. And with thanksgiving. What does that mean? Why would he say thanksgiving? Notice it's not after you get the request, but when you make the request. Why would he do that? This is critical for your understanding so that you can experience the peace the next verse says that it brings. If you get this down, you'll experience the peace that goes beyond understanding. That's the next verse. But if you don't get this, you're not going to get the next verse. You're not going to be able to experience that. So what does he mean by that? Thanksgiving. Why would you thank God when you give him your list of requests? Because you know that God will give to you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knew. You know that you can trust him. That's what it means. I'm going to thank you before. I'm going to give you these requests, and I, and I know that you've got it, and you're going to take care of me, and you love me, and everything's good. You're going to give to me what I would have asked for if I knew everything you knew. Anybody here think that you're smarter than God? We, we act like we do. We get ticked off about things and how things go and our circumstances and our life and everything like that, not realizing that God is behind the scenes and he loves you more than you could ever dream or imagine, and he's working in your life whether you can see him or not, and he always, he always, always has your best interest at heart. That's why you can have thanksgiving. That's why he says, don't be anxious about anything but in everything with prayer, prayer, walk with God, interact with God, and supplication, with supplication, bring your request to him. Bring it to him and then thank him, knowing, God, you've got this. I know that you have my best interest at heart. I know you're going to take care of me. I'm, I'm, I'm pushing all my chips in on this. I'm trusting you. I know. I know you love me unlike anybody else loves me. That's, that's it. Let's, let's work that down into our heart just a little bit more. Let me read a text here. Here's the cross-reference. Matthew 7, 7 through 11, Sermon on the Mount. Listen, listen to the, the heart of our, our Father, our, the Father heart of God. Listen to what he has to say to us. When we're all stressed out, we're all anxious, we're having a tough time, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and, and it will be opened to you. See, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness. You have a father in heaven that loves giving to you. He loves you. That's why he's inviting us. Literally, the Greek here means ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. And then he goes on. He says, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be open." Or, or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Anybody ever do that? Your kid asks for a bowl of cereals and a bowl of cereal, and you give him a bowl of rocks. Here, chew on this, kid. It's almost a little bit of Hebrew uh, humor here, isn't it? It's kind of like, that's odd. Of course you're not going to do that. I mean, that's a rhetorical question. How about this one? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. I did that. Bit my kid right on the face, that big old snake. He got over it. Of course I wouldn't do that. That's stupidity, but that's a rhetorical question. He's just saying nobody's going to do that. He says nobody's going to do that. And in fact, he, he says, if you then who are evil, 
Well, that, that's an insult, Jesus. You're calling us evil. Yeah, 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 I am. <laughs> you're not perfect. You're imperfect, and, and you have sin in you. And yet, if, if you who are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Do you hear the Father heart of God? Oh, my goodness. Oh, if you could get that, if you understood the Father heart of God towards you. There's not a parent on earth that wants the very best for their children as much as your Father in heaven wants for you. And I know as a parent, I love my kids, I love my grandkids, I want the very best for them. But the Bible's saying, even more does your heavenly Father want the best for you. Do you hear that? That's why we can do it with thanksgiving. And he will give to us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knew. Because he always has our best interest at heart. And I can rest in that. Lord, I give you these, I keep giving you these circumstances. I keep giving you this, these people in my life. I keep giving you this. God, I know that you have this worked out. I'm going to trust you. I know you're with me. You're not going to leave me. You're going to take care of me. I don't have to be agitated. I don't have to be irritated. I don't have to be stressed out. I don't have to be worried. I don't have to be filled with fear. Your perfect love chases away the fears, Lord. I know that you love me perfectly and let me rest in that love. I don't need to be stressed out. I don't have to be inordinately angry and, and in despair. I can rest in you. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. He loves giving good gifts to those who ask him. He loves us. See, that goes back to the peace with God. You have peace with God. That's, you have peace with God, and that peace with him will give you the peace of God, of God, ruling your heart and mind. You need to have the assurance of peace with God so that you can have the confidence in peace, peace of God as it rules your hearts and minds in, in Christ Jesus. There is no gift from God that is better than the gift of God. Did you know that? Having him in your life is better than any gift you'll ever get from him. So the disciplines of peace stand firm in the Lord, agree in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, trust in the Lord. That's our part. We can do all of those things. And, and now what is the character of peace? The character of peace is this. It is confidence and rest in God's perfect love, infinite wisdom, and unlimited power, guarding, governing, and guiding my life. And that's based on verse 7. So as I learn verse 6, I can begin to live in the reality of verse 7. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The word guard here is a military term such as an army guarding the city from enemy attack. So your peace is directly related to how much you trust the army protecting you. So let me ask you this, how much do you trust God to have your best interest at heart? How much do you trust God to have your best interest at heart? 24 seven, he's looking after you. He loves you. He will protect you. He will provide for you. And that was blood-bought. You didn't achieve it. You didn't earn it. You received it by grace through faith in Christ. That's the gospel. You have peace with God. And he always has your best interest at heart. Some of this won't make sense this side of eternity, but believe me, we will have all eternity to celebrate. And we'll look back and we'll go, oh. Oh my goodness, that is crazy, yeah. He always has your best interest at heart. No one loves you like he loves you. How much do you trust God to have your best interest at heart? A couple of quotes that we've used around here for years. Worry is believing that God will get it wrong. 
Bitterness is believing that God did get it wrong. Here's the next character of peace. It is not just thinking right things, that's theology, but also loving right things, doxology. Did you notice in verse 7 he says, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard heart and mind. So mind is thinking right things, heart is loving right things. So theology and doxology. Your thought theology should lead to doxology, which is worship. Look at verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about such things. Literally, the Greek here on the very tail end where it says, think about these things, the Greek means to ponder, meditate, continually drill these things into your heart and mind. So let's take each of those. First of all, thinking right things, doctrine, theology. I think that's represented there in verse 8. This is whatever is true, honorable, just. I memorized this in NIV, so whatever is true, noble, and right. I believe he's talking theology here. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will do what? It will set you free. So it seems like there's certain theological truths that the more I embrace them, the more it brings freedom from inordinate anxiety, anger, and, and depression. Does that make sense? So the more I understand this, the more it's going to set me free. So if truth brings freedom, lies bring bondage, and lies will bring inordinate anxiety, anger, and depression into my life. To the degree I embrace a lie is to the degree I will experience inordinate anxiety, anger, and depression. To the degree I embrace the truth is to the degree that I will experience freedom from inordinate anxiety, anger, and depression. That's why we need to know the truth. The greatest defense against the lies in your head is the rehearsal of God's word in your heart. Psalm 119.11, your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. I actually believe that inordinate, now we're setting aside any physiological contributions here, but inordinate anxiety, anger, and depression would be sin. We're missing out. We're missing the mark. We're living below our potential and privilege in Christ Jesus. I think that would be sin. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not be inordinately anxious, angry, and depressed. Now, here's what's interesting. Worldly peace is a denial of, of reality. I did a, a search. I asked Siri on my phone this last week, hey, give me a list of uh, techniques to overcome anxiety, a life of anxiety. And I said, and I went on and told her it was because I'm teaching a message this next weekend, and I need a lot of help in coming up with good, good notes. No, I didn't do that. I didn't continue on with that. I knew that God already had the answers, but I was curious about what the world says. And the world typically deals with symptoms rather than the cause. And it gives good advice. There's some good advice out there, like, hey, get, get a good night's sleep. Yep, that'll help you with your stress. How about this? Exercise. Oh, yeah, that'll work. How about eating right, having good diet? Yep, that, yep, that'll... How about learning to say no to certain things in your life, having some good boundaries? Yep, yep, yep. You know, how about having more margin in your life? Well, those are all good, but that's all symptomatic. You're just dealing with symptoms. You don't ever actually get to the root. But that's our culture. They're afraid to... They, they don't have the big cosmic principles to apply to the commonplaces of our life. They deal with superficialities. So worldly peace is a denial of reality. The world teaches techniques to overcome anxiety. The world gives techniques that deal with symptoms rather than the cause. 
But biblical peace, listen, is not a denial of reality, but the embracing of a greater reality. Here, here's what I would say about peace. Peace is, is being in touch with reality and relatively free from anxiety. Why would that be true? It's because you've got a bigger reality. The bigger reality is God, and he loves you, and he gave his life for you, and he's with you, and he'll never leave you or forsake you. You can take it to the bank. Jesus bled and died for you. You have peace with God. That's that bigger reality that invades the smaller realities of our life. Those cosmic principles in the commonplaces of life. We've got to have a high view of God. We have to understand his word. Think right things. That's what he's saying. Think right things. See, Christian peace comes from thinking out the implications of our theology. That's why we teach God's word. That's why we sing songs that are rich with theology. This is the importance of worship and song. We're taking these truths and driving them deep into our heart. We're, we're reflecting on them. See, if someone is loving, wise, and powerful as God promises you to never leave you or forsake you, why would you ever be inordinately anxious, worried, or stressed? Because you don't believe that. If you're a Christian and you believe that God is loving, wise, and powerful, and yet you are inordinately anxious, then you are not thinking deeply about your theology. Your theology is a concept. It's not a reality in your heart. You need to ask for the Holy Spirit to make it alive through spiritual disciplines. Stupid peace is a denial of reality. Ho, 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 to the bottle I go to drown my woe. Isn't that our culture? Uh, all the movies I've ever watched, when someone's stressed out, they give them a drink. Hey, here, you need a drink. Let's medicate. No, no, no. You're going through stress, you need a high view of God. You need the bigger reality to invade your smaller reality. And that's what the Bible teaches. And then loving right things. So not only do we need to think right things, thinking right things, but also loving right things. This is our doxology. That has to do with verse 8, the second three words, pure, lovely, commendable. Whatever is pure, lovely, commendable. Only love of the immutable will bring tranquility. That's a quote from a dead theologian. It's pretty heavy, isn't it? Let me read it again. Only love of the immutable will bring tranquility. What is immutable? That which cannot change. So the reason we don't have peace is because we are loving mutable things more than we should, more than God. There is only one thing that is immutable that no circumstances can take from you, and even the worst circumstances can only give you more of it. What's the worst case scenario in your life? What's the worst circumstances? How about this? Violent death. Violent death gives you, will give you, if you're a believer in Christ, will give you the presence of God, the beauty of God, and the face of God. To live as Christ, to die is gain for believers. What's the worst thing that can happen to you? Violent death. And that just gives you more of God. That's what I'm saying. More of Christ. To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8. God is immutable, unchangeable. You got him in your life? You can endure the storms of life. If you love anything more than you love God, then your contentment or peace 
is predicated on how well the thing you love the most is doing. But if you love God with all of your heart, you will be content and at peace in all circumstances because you will always have what you most want, and that's God. He's primary. Everything else is secondary. doesn't mean those things secondary won't still rock your boat, and there will be times in your life you will have that inordinate anxiety, anger, depression, but you'll be consolable. You'll get back to a place where you're centered on God, and he will give you what you need. You will have the peace of God that transcends all understanding that will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's not enough to think about the right things, but you must love the right things. Here's the last one. We're talking here, character of peace. It is seeking the God of peace, which will give you the peace of God. It is seeking the God of peace. This is about relationship. It's not a technique. It's about getting to know the God of the galaxies who loves you. Look at verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What's the difference between seeking the peace of God versus seeking the God of peace? What's the difference between seeking the peace of God? So I'm not asking you to seek the peace of God. Seek the God of peace. Seeking the peace of God, your prayer life only lights up when you are in troubled times. Because God becomes a means to an end. i got to get that peace back. Seeking the God of peace, your prayer life is always lit up regardless of the times because you have what you most want, and that's the God of peace. You just love him. That's the best part of the Christian life. Don't just seek the peace of God. Seek the God of peace, and you'll have the peace of God. Let me end with a, a story here. And Horatio Spafford was an American lawyer who lost everything he had in the Chicago fire of 1871. Two years later, he sent his wife, Anna, and four daughters on a ship across the Atlantic Ocean to England for a trip. The ship hit another ship on the way and began to sink. And as it was sinking, Anna got their four little daughters together and began to pray. The ship went under the water, and they were all scattered under the waves. All four of the little girls drowned and Anna was found unconscious by a rescue ship floating. They rescued her and took her to England and she wired or she cabled her husband, Horatio Spafford, two words, just two words, saved alone. When Horatio was on a ship heading to England to bring his wife home, and came to the place where his daughters had drowned, he wrote the hymn. Maybe you're familiar with it. Anybody know what hymn it is? It is well with my soul. Listen to some of the lyrics here. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It's interesting what he's doing in this, when you read through this, I encourage you to read through the words. He's applying cosmic principles to common places because he talks about Satan. Though Satan should buffet me, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance, what blessed assurance? Control me, he's saying, that Christ, yes, he has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. What is he talking about there? He's saying, I have peace with God through his shed blood. I'm going to take the cosmic principle 
and apply it to the commonplace of my life. And that's what will give me peace in this circumstance. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand it. But I know that he cares about me. It is well with my soul. He goes on, he says, my sin, oh, the bliss of, his, of this glorious thought, a thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, every bit, every bit, all of it is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Yes, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. So he's taking the cosmic principles, applying to the commonplaces of life. Now, why, why, would, he, why would he do that? Because when we go through difficulties, oftentimes we're thinking, is God punishing me? No, the cross. No, the cross. He died for all my sin. He's not punishing me. This isn't punitive. It's purifying. That's why he's talking about these big ideas of the gospel. I have peace with God. Therefore, I can have the peace of God to face the difficult circumstances of my life. Does God not care about me? No, the cross. No one cares for you more. Then Christ, that's how he was able to get through that difficulty in his life. That's why he's able to say it as well with my soul. On the cross, Jesus lost his peace so that we could have eternal peace. We could have peace. We could have peace with God so that we could have the peace of God that rules our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus that goes beyond understanding. Next weekend, we're going to talk about God's amazing promises for all of our needs. I'm going to take you into the Old Testament. We're going to talk about the compound Hebrew names for God, how each of his names meets a specific need in our lives. So you're not going to want to miss that. I'll be up front at the end of the service, if, uh, along with any available elders and leaders. If you're new, we'd love to meet you. If you need prayer, want to commit your life to Christ, we'd love to pray with you. If you've got any questions, we'd love to try to answer those questions for you. Don't uh, forget, if you've never been to one of our newcomer parties, uh, we'll have one right at the end of this service over here in the community hall. We'd love to have that opportunity to, to, to meet you and get to know you. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Father God, thank you for the cross of our Savior, Jesus. Jesus lost his peace and cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we could have eternal peace and cry out, Abba, Father, help us to stand firm in Christ, agree in Christ, rejoice in Christ, and trust in Christ so that we can have confidence and rest in your perfect love, infinite wisdom, and unlimited power, guarding, guiding, and governing our lives in all circumstances. We pray these things for your glory, our joy, in Jesus' beautiful and glorious name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys. God bless you.